This is a, a, it's a common community group question. We might have actually asked it over uh, the years, but this is the kind of thing that you would ask in a small group or in a community group. If you were writing an autobiography about your life, what would the title be? You're writing an autobiography about your life. What would you name the title? Uh, there's a lot of autobiographies. Some of them have really brilliant names, and some of them are really cringy. Let me get rid of the really brilliant one first, and then we'll move right to the cringy ones, because that's what you want to hear. Uh, Long Walk to Freedom by Nelson Mandela. It's a beautiful title. Matter of fact, you should read that book if you haven't. I read it when I was about to do some, I was thinking about doing postgraduate study on uh, Mandela. Uh, this one, now let me just say this. This is a game, you're going to guess the author. But this is a game for people over 40. Because nobody writes autobiographies, hopefully, until you're older. And so you're gonna, if you're over 40, you're going to know these. If you're younger, you might not. Uh, but let's try. Here's a, here's a cringy one. I am not Spock. <laughs> Leonard Nimoy. You might not have known his name, but that's an obvious one, right? Uh, leading with my chin. You think boxer? You would think like Sugar Ray Leonard? You would think like Mike Tyson? Oh, no, friends. Jay Leno. That's who it is. Now, most of you don't know who Jay Leno is, but he had this huge chin, so he just like went all into it. I can't wait till tomorrow I get better looking every day. What kind of narcissist would write that? But you think it's who? I don't know who that is, actually. But I assume she's pretty, or at least you think she is. <laughs> I, I was going to say Cindy Crawford. Uh, oh, no, friends. Jets quarterback Joe Namath. Here's my favorite one. This is so cringy. And, and you'll get this immediately because it's given away in the title. Don't hassle with the Hoff. David Hasselhoff. Now, we want to be a church that's for everybody. We've always said we want to be a church that's a refuge for all people. But if you have Don't Hassle with the Hoff on your bookshelf at home, we might not be the place for you. <laughs> There's plenty of good churches in town uh, that you could go to. You know, if you think about what would be your autobiography, if you're writing an autobiography, what would be the title of it? I've, I've decided, I thought about it long and hard. You know what my title would be? And I mean this like serious, it's going to turn serious really quickly here. Mine would be this, my friend, the king. And it'd be about meeting in junior high, this person who said he was going to be my friend for life. And then as I got to know him over the period of my life, I thought he was just a friend to help me through junior high. I thought he was just a friend to get me through high school. I, I thought he was just somebody who would forgive all of my sins. It turns out he's the king of the universe. And we don't understand how kings work, right? Because most of them now are corrupt, thinking about kings in Africa, or people who are just placeholders, thinking about kings in, you know, obviously England. They still have some power, but the monarchy has diminished in its power. I think everybody would agree with that. So there's always been this longing for the king, but we don't have a king. The, the word doesn't really translate to us biblically. But ever since 1 Samuel chapter 8, people have longed for a king, somebody to protect them. 
Somebody to watch over them. Somebody to defeat all of his and their enemies. And somebody who would also say, I'm not only the king, but I'm your friend. I'm your friend who's the king, which holds together, I think what we see together in this text, which is eminence and transcendence. Now, if you're reading through the Bible, we've gotten through the crucifixion, we've gotten through the resurrection, and you're reminded again, like I am, that in Christianity, there is eminence, that God walks among us, and he calls us friends, John 15. And then at the same time, there's transcendence. Like right now, He's being worshipped in the heavenly realms by all of the heavenly hosts. And we get to worship him here in this room. There is imminence and transcendence held together. And here as we pick up in Luke chapter 24. We know that Jesus has been crucified. He's been resurrected. And now we see one of his resurrection appearances. Let me read the whole text. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands, see my feet? That it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. They said to him, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me And the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And, he, and they worshiped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. This is the word of the Lord. I really just want to impress you with who Jesus is. So seven points about Christ. First one is this. The king, your friend, is resurrected. Now there's a couple of options. Like you could believe that they were just hallucinating. Uh, You could believe that this whole thing was some kind of lie or a hoax. But as I tell you pretty much every Easter, people don't die for a lie. They don't die for a prank. All of these disciples were going to be crucified, some upside down, some beaten, some tortured. And they kept the whole thing together. You could pretend that they hid the body. But the Romans were really good at protecting the people they had killed. And all the evidence would say that everybody knew where the body was. You could say that he never died in the first place. But again, the Romans were experts at killing people. They knew exactly how to do it. They knew how to torture a person within an inch of their life and then make them hold on for a little bit longer. You could believe all of those things or you could believe 
that there was something to this outlandish statement that a man rose from the dead. That he did something that no other person could do. That he did something that actually only God could do. Listen to what N.T. Wright says where he says this. In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. Let me pause there. In other words, they knew they couldn't claim that resurrection happened because it would have been public. There's a little uh, two you know, sentences in the Gospel of John where it says the chief priests were trying to find a way and plot to kill who? Lazarus. Because Lazarus had been, and everybody had seen him. They're like, saw Lazarus again today. Down there eating falafels. I saw Lazarus again. You know, like he's everywhere. And so they're like, we got to kill the evidence somehow. This is a, kind of a throwaway verse. You might not have ever seen it. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by authorities, and this had happened before, Jacob Maccabeus, other Jewish revolutionaries all throughout life, and managed to escape and arrest themselves, had two options. Give up the revolution or find another leader. That's the way it had always worked for the Jewish people. We've got, our guy has been killed. We've got two options. Give this thing up entirely or go find somebody else. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option. Unless, of course, he was. And then it was the only cards you have left to play. I like how Killer kind of fleshes this out again. Tim Keller says, let's not forget, however, that the first century people felt exactly the same way. They found the resurrection just as inconceivable as you do. The only way anybody embraced the resurrection back then was by letting the evidence challenge and change their worldview, the view of what was possible. And today again, we see Jesus standing among them in verse 36 as they walk along the roads. And we have to come to grips with the reality that the evidence presented in the Bible and in history is that we have a God who's resurrected, who has defeated death, hell, and the grave forever. And if you're not a Christian, you have to deal with that first claim. And you have to consider the evidence of it. That this thing was not done in the quarter. That he appeared to many, many people after that. That Christianity is based on the evidence of the resurrection. And we have to allow our worldviews to change that this might just be possible. Because God is not like us. Now, if this uh, unexpected Jesus is resurrected, what does it mean? Well, it means two things. On one side, it means that your life matters now. Because he could have just ushered everybody into the heavens. He could have been resurrected and said, I won. I'm going to demolish all of you now. He could have done that. But he said, no, I'm going to be resurrected and ascended. And I'm going to leave you here. And I'm going to give you my spirit. Because your life matters. What you do on this day-to-day world that we live in, it matters. The resurrection gives us purpose and hope in life. And then on the other hand, the resurrection also teaches us that there's more to this life than life. That there's something after this life. So the resurrection means that the 
the baby that only lives for a few months, there's more than just this life. The, the person that uh, never gets out of the, the addiction that they're in, there, there's more to this life. The person that gets cancer when they're 14 and dies, there's more than just this life. And the resurrection pushes both ends out. It says, no, this life, life matters a lot, and this life isn't all that there is. Point number two, the king, your friend, brings peace. He stood among them, verse 36, and what's the first thing that he says to them? Peace to you. Why did he say that? Verse 37, they were startled and frightened and that they saw that they had seen a spirit or a ghost. I love what's presented here by Luke. It doesn't make them out to be heroes. If you were making up a story, you would say, I want the main characters and we're going to build a whole world religion based on these 12 people. Uh, so we want to make sure that they have a lot of tenacity. They, want to, they have a lot of grit. They really believe these things. They're really all in. They're really all sold out. No, it presents them as startled and frightened. Now, the Gospel of Luke was written, it's a prequel to a sequel. So Luke was written by a historian named Luke, never met Jesus. He was funded by a really rich guy apparently named Theopolis to go out there and to find out about the historical Jesus and then to find out about the historical church. And so Luke and then Acts are part one and part two of basically the same book. And so Luke is just a researcher. He's basically a historian that has a background of being a physician. And so he's just presenting the evidence. And he doesn't present them as heroes. He presents them as scared and he presents them as frightened. And then Jesus says, why did doubts arise in your hearts? Now the point is this, the king, your friend, brings peace. And why can he say peace be to you? Here's why. Because Christ knows how to diagnose you. You ever had a um, physical problem and you go to the doctor and you run the tests and you know something's wrong. You can feel it. You can sense it. You know your body. You know something's wrong. And they run the test. They do the blood work. They do the neurological stuff. They do it all. And then they come back and they say, yeah, we don't know what's wrong. We can send you to Mayo. We can send you to Hopkins. We can send you plenty of other places. But honestly, nobody can figure it out. That is not peace-giving. Because you just want to know, what's wrong with me? Why do I feel this way? What's out of sorts? Why can't, why can't somebody tell me what's wrong? You know what you want? You want to be diagnosed. You want somebody who could say, I know what's in your heart. I know you're startled. I know you're frightened. Look what he says in verse 38. I know you're troubled, and I know doubts arise in your heart. I know these things about you. I can diagnose you. You say, well, how do you, how do you fix me? We can totally fix you as well, says Jesus. Everything that you need, I have in me. So I'm going to take out all of my good parts, and I'm going to put them in you. My righteousness, my holiness, my grace, my mercy, my power, and I'm going to die on the table or on the cross to do it so that you might have life. Because everything that you need is already inside of me, and I'm going to give you peace. But these people, these disciples, they're just like us. They're startled, 
They're frightened. They see the resurrected Christ himself, and they're doubting. And here's what I want to say before we move on to the next point. Jesus loves you so much. He is okay with you being uncertain about him. That doubting is part of the Christian life. It's probably not something that we grow out of. And Jesus is willing to wait for you. Let me put it in high school terms. (laughs) You have a a girl that you like and uh, she's friend-zoned you. Half of you don't know what that means. Find a high schooler and ask them. It would be a great way to interact with high schoolers. But you love her so much, you're willing to wait for her. You're you're willing to put up with her uncertainty until she falls in love with you. You pay for that dream vacation. You're going to go to the Maldives. You're going to go to Turks and Caicos. And you've already laid down the money to go. And the flight's delayed. You're willing to wait. And Jesus is willing to wait on you. He wants to bring you peace. And he knows that you might have some doubts about him. And that's why the next point is this. The king, your friend, always moves towards you. So in the middle of these doubts, in the middle of their uncertainty, seeing the resurrected Christ, uh, in the middle of them being startled and frightened and not being able to process what's happening, he's incarnate. He's imminent. See my hands, verse 39, and my feet, that is I myself, touch me and see Spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like this. In other words, go ahead, explore. Poke me, prod me, do what you need to do so that you're sure that I'm the resurrected king. It's so tender, it is so kind. The king, your friend, always moves towards us. You could move in in, in such a way uh, towards him, but he moves towards you. Now just think about this for a second. You find a stinky person in your class. They went to gym class before, and then they have biology class after that. Does anybody sit close to them? No. You find the crazy guy on the subway in New York City. Does everybody, like, anybody get close to that guy? No. You find the guy that nobody likes to be around because he spreads lies at your company. Does anybody want to have lunch with that guy? No. You find the person who's embarrassing somehow. Does anybody kind of want to be their friend? No. When we're sinners, when we make mistakes, when we have all kinds of problems, the natural propensity of humans is to move away. I remember uh, junior high. Everybody has a junior high uh, tragedy. Uh, I've got several only one of which I'll tell you right now. But I remember this like it was yesterday. Out of camp and a tray, burgundy tray. You remember those burgundy trays? I don't know why they were burgundy. They were either burgundy or brown or yellow. Burgundy tray. They should have made them like green or purple or, you know, something better. Burgundy tray, thing of liquid, so plastic on plastic. You know, you already have that going against you. And then like a plate. And I had a, a hot dog french fries and beans on my plate and a cup of applesauce and it was either that or the rectangular pizza how did any of us live past 35 uh, with this processed food and somehow the the 
uh, water got off. And so I was trying to, ba- it was like a survivor skill. You know, I was trying to like balance it back on and doing that. It just got worse and worse and worse and worse. Eventually the whole thing fell. And I remember to this day watching the hot dog roll across the floor <laughs> and everybody stopped and everybody, even my best friends who were standing right beside me fled like roaches. <laughs> everybody was gone. And I'm down there with my spoon trying to get the beans back on, picking up the overly processed hot dog, walking with shame to the tray, you know, to put it up, the whole game's, everybody moves away. Hey, when you're a sinner, when you're doubting, when you don't know about Christ, when you've got temptations, when you're stuck in life, Jesus actually moves towards you. He doesn't move away from you. He moves towards you to say, here I am. I'm ready to take your pain. Got a friend. She has a uh, biological dad, and then she has a father who raised her. And uh, she found the biological dad later in life. Wasn't the greatest of guys. And went to visit her biological father with the father who raised her who basically got stripped of some of his title because they found out of the other. The biological father, not the best of guys, obviously gave up any right to know her or to raise her, had bladder cancer, struggling with that, had an accident in his diapers. Now he's got this problem, and the the father who raised her move towards this guy who can't get himself changed to help change him to take the urine soaked stinky part of this other guy who had abdicated the throne of being a father and out of gospel love and grace said i'm going to move towards you that's the gospel The gospel is us looking at each other when we've said something we shouldn't have in journey group or in community group. The gospel is you see somebody has sinned or you see somebody's anger. The gospel is your spouse or your kids have desperately, massively hurt you and you have every right to hold it against them. And the gospel means we actually move towards people in those situations, not away from them. Because your king, your friend always moves towards us. It's a beautiful picture. The king, your friend, is patient with you. Verse 41 and 43, if you look back at this. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, do you have anything to eat? Um, This is a really beautiful phrase, and I just want you to see the patience of God in it. While they still disbelieved for joy. Um, You need to know what that means. I'm not going to go into the Greek syntax, but it doesn't mean they were joyful in their disbelief. That's not what's happening here grammatically. Instead, what's happening here grammatically is this. If I were writing it in the children's storybook Bible, I would write it this way. It just seemed too good to be true. This seems, this is too marvelous. This is too joyous that God might have completely reversed the curse of death for him and for us and everybody. It just seems way too good to be true. That's probably the best, re- the best reason to reject Christianity is it seems too good to be true. But it is true. 
So you can't reject it. And even in the middle of this, they're still disbelieving. They're like, whoa, we don't know. Could this be possible? Could it, could it be could it be real that our God is actually resurrected, that we don't have to find another revolutionary or another leader? Jesus, so patient. Do you have anything to eat? Let me prove to you again, by doing what we do, fellowship, and eating a broiled piece of fish, by sharing this meal, that I'm willing to be patient with you. God is so patient with us. The king, your friend, is so patient with us because we've said in life that we're going to do all these kinds of things for him, and we haven't. And we say in life we're going to change. We haven't. We say in life all the time, I'll never do that again. And then we do. And we say in life, I'm going to do better this time, and then we don't. And it's the patience of God, the faithfulness of God, that allows you to come back to him time and time again. The king, uh, what are we on? Uh, We're on the number here. Uh, I think five. I'm not sure. I didn't number them. The king, your friend, fulfills the plan. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Moses representing the priests. Here we see the prophets and the Psalms fulfilled. So this connection of the prophet, priest, and king now all being fulfilled in Christ. In other words, Christ saying to them, everything that you've been reading since Genesis 3, when the seed of woman would come and conquer the seed of the serpent, that first gospel and everything you've been reading throughout this whole year of journeying through scripture, it's all fulfilled in me. I am the fulfillment of everything that you've been longing for, everybody, everything you've been looking for. Everything had to happen for this very moment. Verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And then he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Let me, three things about the plan real quick. It's not going to be, these points are on there. But the first part is this. His plan for us is to live lives of repentance. Look at what he says. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. It's not a one-time thing. Uh, It's not walking the aisle. It's not a one-time decision. We always are called to repent. All of life, as Luther says, all of life is repentance. And as I said to somebody Oh, this week or last week. I remember who it was. I don't remember when I told him this. I said, you're trying to live a life excluded from repentance. You're trying to live a life where you never have to say you're sorry. You're trying to live a life where you never have to kind of come clean. And it's killing you. Why can't you accept the reality that all of life is going to be repentance? That God actually gives you repentance and faith, this two-step gift to know intimacy with him and intimacy with others. Like he gives us the gift of repentance that we can always say, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, I'm going to turn to you now, I'm going to look to you now. And we say, I I want to live a life where I don't have to repent, where I don't have to ask forgiveness, where I don't have to use faith. No, I've given you these two gifts so that you could know me better. But Robert Capon, who's always uh, kind of cuts to the heart, said, it cannot be said too often that in the New Testament, 
The opposite of sin is not virtue. It's faith. I'm going to let that sit for a second. Because most of us probably fundamentally believe that the opposite of sin is virtue. No, friends. That will cause you just to get into that game of what's greater on the scale. I've sinned. I've got to have some virtue. I've got to protect my testimony. I've got to keep the testimony. I've got to uh, keep my witness. I've got to do all these things. We're not speaking against holiness, but the way to holiness is faith. The way to holiness is to let God to change you so that that would be proclaimed, again, verse 47, that would be proclaimed to the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. In other words, I have a plan. Imagine that, in that little room. I have a plan for taking this around the world. And I'll say this one quick point and then move on. I need some of you to pray, and I mean college kids and high school kids. I need some of you to pray about going into ministry. And you know I don't idolize ministry over uh, working well uh, in the world. We believe that all of life has been redeemed. You can honor God as an accountant just as much as you can a pastor, if not more sometimes. But the harvest is plentiful. And if we're going to take this to the nations, we need more missionaries and we need more workers. We need more people who are willing to say, I'll go wherever you want me to go. And we're in desperate need in this country of God raising up another generation to take the gospel to the nations. If you don't do it through ministry, do it however God gifts you. And the plan, verse 49, is to be clothed with power. Look at verse 49. And behold, I'm sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. What does he mean by that? He says, stay there until I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. Because that's where your power comes from. Daniel and I were at the game uh, yesterday, the Clemson game. And um, wonder, it's so cold. Uh, but wonderful game. Just great being with my son there. We were in the very top nosebleeds. It was really cold up there. And the fourth quarter comes. You know, everybody at Clemson game, everybody you know, does the fourth quarter. And they always play a hype video. Fourth quarter. And it's watching the guys work and sweat. And it's, it's inspiring. Like... Legit, after that video, I always think, I've got some eligibility left. I totally should try out. <laughs> you, get, you get like that hyped. But basically the whole summation, and, and Daniel turned to me and he's like, that was awesome. And I was like, I know, it was phenomenal. The sweat, you know, the chains, all the things that they're doing. You're like, I'm all into this you know, thing right now. But basically, uh, I cannot not be philosophical Basically, the summation of all that was dig into your own power. Dig deep to your power. All your training, dig deep into you. And that is great and good for football. It doesn't work for the Christian life. Because you need power from on high. You need a Holy Spirit power that's not in you to help you love your spouse, to help you ask for forgiveness, to help you learn how to be generous. You need something outside of you to go in you. That's why Schaefer says this, we must realize that it's only the Holy Spirit who can give us the power. And we must realize that the only motivation which pleases our dear Lord is our love for him. Merely keeping machinery turning and getting all mixed up in the self-aggrandizement that so often goes with a large organization completely casts aside the primary motive of love towards the Lord and the dependence then 
on the one source of true Christian power, the Holy Spirit. So maybe when you're stuck this week, you need to say, come Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, help me at this moment. You live within me. You reign within me. I'm asking for your power to do the right thing here. I'm asking for your power to avoid this temptation. I'm asking for your help. I am dependent upon you. Not my training, not my expertise, not my physical acumen. I'm dependent upon you. Because God, you said by Christ, you would give it to me. The king, your friend, leads us. I'll go very quickly here. Verse 50, he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blesses them. He leads us in order to bless you. He doesn't lead you to a place of, uh, where you're not going to be blessed, and you just need to know that. I could extrapolate more on this point, but I want to go to the last one. The king, your friend, leads you. And then lastly, the king, your friend, is ascended. Now, a couple long quotes here. Because we see the king, he departed, he was carried up to heaven, and then they worshiped him. But we don't, uh, I'm going to preach maybe a whole sermon series on this. It's one of the grace notes of theology. We don't talk a lot about either the Holy Spirit, or not enough, or the ascension. And the ascension is a huge theological concept. Anthony Kelly says it this way. In his ascended existence, he now fills all time and space. He inhabits every dimension of reality from the highest helm of the infinite Godhead to the mundane, agonizing reality of created existence. The ascension opens up space in which believers themselves begin to inhabit a new sphere of transformed existence. In other words, my friend, who I met when I was 14, is now the ascended king of the universe who personally knows me and personally knows you and is ascended on the throne because the work has been done so he can sit down. So as Julie Candless, brilliant, uh, uh, Julie got her PhD from uh, St. Andrews, wrote a book on ascension theology of John Calvin, won the Templeton Prize for it. Julie uh, Candless said, ascent is neither the lone journey of Jesus nor the abstracted elevation of the soul, but is the future for an embodied humanity that is co-present with Jesus and his Father. You need to give some time, because we haven't done it as a church as much as we should have, to think and to meditate on what it means that Christ, your King, and your friend, is ascended to his throne. And we can say it means at least a couple of things. It means you can rejoice and you can laugh. And that's what they did. That was the natural reaction from Jesus going up to heaven. Verse 52, they worshiped him and they returned with Jerusalem with great joy. They worshiped him because they knew he was something other and they had great joy. I love this quote. I've read it to you before recently, but I'm going to do it again because it's just so good. Eugene O'Neill, his great play about Lazarus when he said, and then Lazarus, the resurrected Lazarus, knelt and kissed Jesus' feet and both of them smiled and Jesus blessed him and called him my brother and went away and Lazarus, looking after him, began to laugh softly like a man in love with God. I just, I love, love, love that phrase. That when we leave out of here, we can leave like with this uh, soft chuckle 
And when you see the election results, good or bad, when you see your financial statement, good or bad, when you uh, hear the news, good or bad, (laughs) you can kind of chuckle about it because your God is resurrected and ascended and is seated on his throne. You can leave and worship and have joy. And for those who aren't believers, last quote, at his ascension, the Lord entered heaven and he keeps the door open for humanity to enter. So come in, friends. And if you're not a believer, at least have the conversation with me or a friend, or an elder, or somebody else that you know loves the Lord, because at the ascension, he has opened the door, and he keeps it open until all might come in. Until that time, if you're a believer, trust that you have a friend who's also a king, and let's go with joy, and let's go to worship him this week, we pray. Christ, now in your name, that you would help us to do the things we need to do to love and to worship you. We pray, Father, that you would remind us of your patience with us, your willingness to love us. And for those who are feeling on the outskirts, who are feeling shame and guilt, remind us that you move towards us. For those that are doubting, remind us that you show us your hands and your feet and that you have a plan that you're working. Fill our minds today, Holy Spirit, with thoughts about Christ and how wonderful and beautiful he is. And may we make the gospel beautiful in our community, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Take your order of worship, and you'll see this uh, larger catechism question about the ascension of Christ. How is Christ exalted by sitting at the right hand of